tonight we're going to begin our eight-week series titled, What We Believe. Uh, Hearing these sermons and affirming belief in the doctrines that they cover are going to be one of the qualifications for membership here at Love City Church. Now, before we get into that, you may have just asked a question in your mind, and it's a fair question, and I want to address it. If you didn't, just pretend you did. Uh, You could ask, why are we giving people the opportunity to be members here? Why even have church membership? There's many churches that have abandoned that altogether. They don't don't do church membership. Some people um, don't think it matters. For us, the short answer to that is that we believe that it's biblical to have formal membership established. Um, And I don't want you to take anything I say or anybody else says just because I said it. So let's look at a few scriptures together to see why it is we here at Love City believe that having formal membership is is the way that we're biblically faithful. Okay? Uh, If you want to turn there, that's fine. I'm just going to kind of blaze through this. Hebrews 13, 17 says this. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Now, I understand that uh, the word submit in the culture that we live in today is much like or maybe worse than another S word you're not supposed to say, right? I mean, submit is, is not popular because that denotes authority and you're not in charge. And that's not the message our culture is sending you today. The message our culture is sending you today is you're the king of everything, and or queen, sorry ladies, uh, <laughs> you rule everything, you're in charge, you make all the rules, and pretty much nobody can tell you anything. Uh, and I understand that much of our culture believes that, but it's wrong. And clearly here from the scriptures, uh, it is God's will that we do submit to spiritual authority that he establishes. Now, um, this scripture along with 1 Timothy uh, 5 verse 17 affirm that it is God's will for all of us to be submitted to spiritual authority that he establishes. And there are two questions that rise from this scripture that point us towards membership as a biblical model for church organization. Okay, so if you read Hebrews 13, 17, it's talking about that you should submit to, you know, leaders, and that's a good thing, and it's better for you than, you know, making it hard on them. There's a couple questions that come out of that if you're really thinking about it. The first is, if a Christian is not a member of a local church... What leaders do they submit to? How do you obey Hebrews 13, 17 if you're not a member of a local church? Um, Should you go picket funerals with the supposed guys from Westboro Baptist? Because there's a guy there that calls himself a pastor, so should you submit to what he's saying and go picket funerals of soldiers and stuff and just obey that guy? Is that what you should do? How do you know, though, right? Unless you're a part of a specific faith community in a place where you have spiritual authority established in your life, right? Right? You don't just submit to everybody that calls themselves an elder. You submit to authority that God has established and that there's a reason why you trust that person in your life. You've you got to know that they know the Bible. You don't want somebody that's just charismatic and maybe even can carry a tune, right? That's, that's not the qualifications. You want to have somebody that, that you know meets the qualifications biblically, that rules their own house well, and that word rule is not totalitarian, but that leads their own house well. You, you, know, you don't want to look looking for elders and pastors, people that are called to lead in God's house, man, if you look at their house and it's a total wreck, and I don't mean, you know, just disorganized or whatever, but, you know, their family's all tore up, and, and that's, that's a red flag. You can't, if you can't lead in your little house, how can you lead in the big house, right? So that, and that's straight from the scriptures. Uh, so here's the second question. 
Um, if there's no membership, what Christians am I or the other future elders at Love City accountable for? Are we accountable for every Christian in Norwood, Cincinnati, Ohio? Where does it stop, right? Unless there's local church membership, Jesus is clear in the scriptures. He's, there, there's scriptures, some of the scariest scriptures to me are the ones addressed to, to leaders. There's scriptures in the Bible that say things like, don't presume to be a teacher unless God really calls you because you're going to be judged harsh, harsher. I don't get to go to heaven and just answer for me. I got to answer for you too. So would you quit all the stuff that you just got convicted about right now? Just stop because I got to get, I got to answer for that. So if you love me at all, just knock it off. Okay. Because the Bible describes Jesus today, the, the, the risen Christ man with fire in his eyes and, and hair as white as snow and not, he's not humble, you know, marginalized Galilean peasant anymore. He's like risen, reigning King Jesus. And I got to stand in front of him and, you know, are we going to be talking about you? That's what I want to know. <laughs> you know, not only do I have to deal with my own stuff, I got you too, right? So, no, but is that not a logical question? How without church membership do we, do we draw those lines? I... I should be held accountable for those people that God commits into my care. And there's all kinds of scriptures that uh, make that clear. So um, the, the second question that comes up uh, would be a question of, of church discipline. If you look at 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 12, or Matthew 18, 15 through 20, they're two of the more well-known passages on church discipline. Um, and as we discussed in our series on the church, one of the three marks of a true biblical church is church discipline. The practicing of it. Uh, church discipline is, however, not like disciplining your children. Um, if you're being extra sinful, I can't, you know, put you in time out or make you stick your nose in the corner. That's not the way church discipline works. The church doesn't discipline the way that the government does. We don't fine you or stick you in jail. So what Paul makes clear, the, the action that the church has in disciplining someone, and, and here's where church discipline comes in, in case you're not familiar with that. And some of you, you're... He's, you're all the way freaked out now because the guy's talking about submitting, and now he's saying the word discipline. I don't like any of this. The first time he turns around, I'm running for the door. I mean, you're welcome to have that opinion. However, the scriptures would disagree with you, which I tend to agree with them. So, you know, being God's word and everything. Um, so here's the deal. For us, church discipline, Paul makes clear if somebody's unrepentant, the only time church discipline is going to come into place, there's all kinds of scriptures about how Church leadership should be like Jesus in, in, in the fact that we should be long-suffering and we should be patient um, with people that are struggling in sin. We're not, you know, Jesus wasn't rough with people that were struggling with sin. The woman, the woman that was caught in the middle of adultery and everyone wants to stone her, what does Jesus tell the crowd? You without sin, you cast the first stone. He was gentle with her. He told her to get up and go sin no more, but he didn't jump in with everyone and say, yeah, give me a rock, Right? But Jesus gets real ticked off at people that assume they're better than everyone else, like the Pharisees. Jesus saved his most scathing rebukes for the ones that dressed religious and talked religious and thought they had it all figured out. Those are the ones that Jesus said stuff like, you brood of vipers, how are you going to escape hell? You're a bunch of whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. I, I'm not, I know I'm not in that group, but it scares me just even thinking about being anywhere near that conversation. With Jesus talking like that, get me out of there. I'd be overstanding behind him like, yeah, <laughs> what? Um, so anyways, so here's the deal. Um, we, we should be long-suffering and patient like Jesus is with people that are struggling with sin. Um, but th there is a category of people that, 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 that Paul talks about, that um, various scriptures deal with, 
Somebody that's unrepentant, somebody that leadership has come. Maybe it started with, like in Matthew, maybe a, a brother came and, and confronted somebody about sin, and, and they're like, no, I'm not going to change that. I'm not going to stop that. I'm going to keep doing it. And then, then church leadership is involved. And then, you know, on down the line, as Matthew uh, lays it out for us there, uh, if somebody just digs their heels in and refuses to repent, Paul says what we have to do is we have to, to use street-level vernacular, we got to kick that person out. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. If somebody is saying, I'm just going to keep sinning, I'm going to do what I want, I'm not going to submit to the scriptures, I'm not going to submit to what Jesus says, there's something seriously wrong there. Something's gone seriously wrong. And we, we can't allow for somebody to just keep doing that because imagine the message that sends to everybody else. Well, that, there's no authority here. There's no standard here. I can do what I want and still have all the benefits and privileges that come in being a member. And so that's, that's the only course of action we have at the end of the road. You know, we're not going to beat people into submission, although, you know, <laughs> sometimes that would be easier. There's been a few of you young guys I'd like to put in a chokehold just, just to the point right before you pass out, and I'll let you go. Um, but I won't. Uh, but that is, that is the course of action we're given through the Scriptures. If you refuse to repent and you just decide you're right and everybody else is wrong, um, we would have to ask you to no longer be a part of the fellowship. And that, so how do you even have that opportunity if there's no standard for whether you were in to begin with? Right? Does that make sense? So how is church discipline practiced in any way whatsoever if church membership is not established? Okay? Uh, further evidence, if you look at, uh, and I'm going to rattle these off. You can, you can read them later if you like. Acts 2, 37 through 47 and Romans 16, 1 through 16 are two examples of the apostles uh, tracking numbers and specific members of individual local church bodies. So uh, as we've said before, we do not believe that where you go to church is a simple matter of personal choice. We believe that that is a sovereign directive. And um, we believe here that there is a faith community that you're called to be in by God. And as you live life on mission with that church family, that you will flourish and grow in good times and in hard times. And that you're going to specifically be gifted by God to assist in fulfilling the ch that church's assignment from King Jesus. So not only is there a place where you're going to flourish and grow the best because that's where you're called to be, there's also a place where, interestingly enough, your exact gifts and talents are going to be needed desperately. Because if there's a church family that God has brought together for a mission and somebody out here is AWOL doing whatever the heck they want, that church family's then missing that specific gift set and talent. And I believe God knows what he's doing, and if somebody's going to you know, refuse to obey and be where they're supposed to be, then God will fill that gap and not let that church walk with a limp forever. However, uh, it would just be better if we were all in our place, because that's where we're going to be the happiest anyway. That's where we're going to have the most joy. Not necessarily it's always going to be the easiest, right? That's our American fallacy. We always connect easiest with happiest. There's not an equal sign between those. Sometimes struggling through and fighting through the hardships of life with a group of people is where the truest joy is found. That's where the deepest bonds are, are forged. Some of you think that, you know, it's, if we could just all play Candyland and hold hands every day and there was never any trouble, that we would all be best of friends. Uh, deep friendships and relationships are forged much harder and much better and for much longer periods of time when people go through hardship together, when people struggle and fight and complete a mission together. Um, folks who church hop and shop, you know, going somewhere until they get bored or offended, 
they often leave a fellowship just as their heart and motives are being exposed and the real work of sanctification is taking place. Uh, that's, I don't know if you know that. That's a Bible word. It's sanctification. It's different from salvation. Salvation is that point when you go from kingdom of darkness to kingdom of light, from death to life, salvation. But then there's a process that we walk through called sanctification, and that is each day becoming more like Jesus. Hopefully as we are in the word, as we are on mission with other believers, all, more of the old man is being chipped away and more and more we're talking and thinking and acting like King Jesus who made us and saved us, right? So that is sanctification. And sometimes walking through the process of being offended by somebody and then reconciling and then letting that, letting that all bring glory to God and showing that, that humility and grace won the day, sometimes that is a, is a beautiful way to be more sanctified, to grow as a Christian, okay? So uh, don't, don't assume that because you're offended or somebody said something dumb, because I promise you, um, <laughs> unless you're in a room by yourself, you're going to have opportunity to be offended, <laughs> right? Because people are people, right? And they say silly things, and sometimes they're selfish, and they don't think before they talk. Anybody else ever done that before? Anybody else ever said something before you totally thought about what that might make someone feel like? Yeah, me too, right? Anybody who's looking down and all shifty-eyed or shaking no, your head no, you're totally lying. That's okay. We'll work on that. Sanctification, right? We'll get you honest. Okay. Um, before we get into what we believe about where um, we and everything else came from, we're going to talk tonight about the doctrine of creation. I'm really excited about that. Uh, before we talk about that, we need to lay some important groundwork for how we handle essential doctrines. Uh, we need to understand that there are different categories of biblical truth. Um, some doctrines are blatant and obvious, uh, and, and really to deviate from those would be to deviate from the faith altogether. There are some things that the Bible makes so plainly clear that to not believe that really is unchristian. Does that make sense? Um, some are less clear and leave room for interpretation, but you can still be within orthodoxy. And um, we're going to use the, the two-handed approach to doctrine, or, or the open hand and closed hand, uh, as kind of a better way to understand this and, and make those, those distinguishments. Um, so I'm going to just give you a few examples of each of those to kind of illustrate what I'm talking about. Um, for us, here's some things that belong in the closed hand. Um, and when I say that, if something as far as doctrine goes in the closed hand, it's not up for discussion. The scriptures have not left room for interpreting it another way and still remaining faithful. These are things that to not believe this would be unchristian. To not believe this means you've, you've left the faith that the Bible teaches, okay? Um, so, first of all, things like um, the inerrant, inspired, and authoritative nature of scripture. Okay, I'll, let me break those words down. Inerrant, it has no errors. It's inspired that these very words, these scripture are the inspired words of God. Yes, a man's hand wrote it, but we believe that God inspired every single word of scripture. Okay, so it is without error, it is inspired by God, and it is authoritative. Okay, so these are the three things we believe about the scriptures. We don't believe that the scriptures are a bunch of God's best suggestions to us for a better life now. Right? Uh, it's not a bunch of, if you find it convenient, you can feel free to do these. When God says, do this or don't do this, we know it's always motivated by his love and by the fact that he knows better than we do, even though sometimes we foolishly disagree with that. Um, 
Every one of God's commands are motivated by love and for our best. However, they are commands. And they're commands to be obeyed, not suggestions to be considered. Right? And so if that freaks you out, if that's not something you're sure if you believe, you're going to have to get on board with that. Because uh, when I ask you that question, that, you know, that'll be on the test when it comes to membership. You've got to believe the scriptures are the scriptures. And not just you know, some good book out of many that we picked and we'll just kind of go with that one. Right? It is the very words of God. Um, things like the Trinity, the, ex- the exclusivity of Christ for salvation, that there is no other way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Exclusivity, super unpopular today. People want many paths to get to God, many paths to get to heaven. I want to I have you know, at least 10 options. As long as I pick one and do it well, I should be all right. Jesus made it plain. There is only one way to the Father, and it is through faith in his finished work on the cross. And we will stand on that. No matter how loud the culture around us screams at us that we are bigoted or hateful for saying so, the scriptures are clear. Jesus is the one that paid the price. Jesus is the one that made a way. Jesus is the one that took your sin upon himself, dying the death you should have died. He's the one that made a way, and it is only by faith in his finished work, the fact that he lived a perfect life we never could have pulled off, then he took the death we should have took, and not only that, Three days later, rose. we got to believe that. It's all about Jesus. He is th- this, this holy book, this inspired scripture from Genesis to Revelation is either pointing to him or back to him. All of it is about Jesus. Okay? And so uh, we believe he is the only way that we can be saved. Uh, we believe uh, closed hand, salvation through faith and not works. We are adamant that it is by faith that you are saved. By grace through faith in Christ alone, that you are not going to earn your salvation. This is a great misunderstanding for many people. This is what keeps many people away from God. They think that what they need to do is do a certain number of good things to get to the point where God will love them. We don't do good things so that God will love us. We do good things because he has loved us. And that may be the most important distinction we could make. I live the way I live. I try to be a blessing to other people. I try to obey the scriptures. I do what I do because I have this resounding joy in my heart that makes me want to obey him. When I understand what I was, dead in sin and with no hope, and that he reached for me when I was not reaching for him, that he loved me before I ever thought about loving him, when I understand all of that, that he took what I should have took, that he paid the price that I should have paid, but I never could have ponied up for. When I realize what all he did, it makes me want to serve him. It is a response. My love for God is a response to the fact that he's already loved me. And he's done it perfectly. And so he did all the work, and what I have to do, this is it doesn't even make sense. Nothing else in your life is ever going to work like this. You're never going to go to a job, and they're going to say, here, all I need you to do is believe that I'm going to give you this job. Now I'm just going to pay you indefinitely. Go find me that deal, and I will give you half of the salary that they pay me to just believe that they'll give me the job. It doesn't work like that. Jesus said, I'll do everything, because if you try to do it, you're going to screw it up. I'll do it. I'll be perfect. All I need you to do is believe that I did it. Believe that I was perfect, that I died in your place, and that I rose again. Put faith in that fact, and you can be saved, and then live in light of it. Best deal going. 
Things like, uh, still talking about what are closed hand issues for us. The virgin birth, the perfect life, substitutionary death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus. That's not up for debate. The scriptures are clear. Those things are closed hand. Uh, we will defend those and we will divide over those. If somebody claims to be Christian and does not believe those things, they, they, are, they are telling a falsehood. You cannot be Christian without believing these things. Now, there are, I'll give you a few examples of doctrines that, be, um, that belong in the open hand. Um, and these are things that we can discuss or debate or dialogue about, but we need not divide over, right? So there are certain essential doctrines that belong in the closed hand that if you don't believe them, you're not a Christian. And that's not to mean that we're, we're, we're mean to those people because they don't believe it. We, we love them just like we love everybody else, but, but we don't associate with them and pretend that they're Christian, Okay? Mormons are not Christians, okay? Is that okay? Everyone all right with that? Because they don't believe these essential things, the way the Scriptures very plainly lay them out. Furthermore, the Scriptures made it very clear, you're not going to add to this. This is the end of Scripture. You know, and then <laughs> all of a sudden, several centuries later, an angel brings some gold plates and we've got a whole other book. So that's a major problem. But anyways, um, <laughs> sorry, Mitt. Uh, so, open hand subjects or topics or doctrines are things that we can debate or dialogue about, but we don't need to divide over, okay? So, these are things that we could, two people could disagree on this and still love each other and serve and be in the same faith community. You don't have to have the exact same opinion on certain subjects in the scriptures in order to be in fellowship with one another, okay? Does that make sense? So, here's a few examples of some of those. Uh, mode of dress in gatherings, right? So, there are certain churches that when you go there, um, you know, if, <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't have a mortgage on the clothes that you wore there, you know, you're not going to fit in, right? Like, it's got to be, you got to be just so. Like, you know, when you come to church, the, part of the deal is that, uh, and, 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 you know, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't be <clears throat> like that. Um, you know, I think sometimes it's out of um, earnest intentions. Uh, they'll say things like, you know, if you met the president, you'd dress up, so you're coming to meet with Jesus, so you should dress up. I get that. I understand that mentality. However, I search through the scriptures and look for things about dress, like what, what does the Bible say about what we wear? And so clearly we're told to be modest. We should dress in such a way that we're not going to cause brothers and sisters to sin, but as far as instruction goes, I mean, we don't, we don't get, you know, a fashion magazine of advice on what to wear in the scriptures. We don't find it. But when we see Jesus commenting on somebody's dress, it's never that he's yelling at somebody for coming up to him in clothes that weren't nice enough. As a matter of fact, the only people's dress he ever points out, again, is the Pharisees with their pointy hats and their long robes and you know, them feeling cooler than they really are. And so I don't, you know, I don't intentionally dress down for church, but I don't think if, if Jesus was to come bodily and, and, and come in today that he would be in a you know, a four-button Western business suit. I just don't, I don't see any evidence scripturally for that, okay? However, if you do feel that way and want a fellowship at Love City and you've got a closet full of suits and you want somebody to see, hallelujah, bring your suits and I will comment and tell you, that's a great suit. Um, pinstripes really do it for you, right? So, you know, don't, don't, don't overcorrect. I mean, the, the bottom line is what, what you're comfortable in and what... Here's, here's my thing when it comes to dress. I'm, I'm deviating from my notes, so glory to God. Um, here's what I care about. Before you come to a gathering of God's people to worship Him, to sit under the teaching of the Word, to be in His holy presence, 
I'm so much more concerned with you taking time to prepare your heart for that than being standing in front of your closet doors, vexing over what it is you're going to put on to adorn your outer self. I don't care. Put a potato sack on as long as it covers your unmentionable parts and get here, right? <laughs> Prepare your heart to come before God. I think he cares very little what the heck you're wearing, whose name is on the tag, la di da di da how much it cost, right? That's not the focus. You don't see that anywhere in the scriptures. But what's going on inside of us, God cares very much about that. And he's looking right past the designer name on your shirt or lack thereof, and he's looking into your heart to see what's going on there. That's what I care about. That's what I believe Jesus cares about. So that's what we as a faith family care about. Okay? Um, so, but that's something that I believe there are, there are places where the expectation is to dress up where they still love Jesus with all their heart. They're committed Christians. And in some ways, you know, that level of commitment and discipline that it takes to put on a three-piece suit when it's 100 degrees outside, we could probably learn something from that, right? You know, So, glory to God. Um, I believe that's an open-hand topic. Um, but I didn't act like it was. It really is open-hand, sorry. I'm not even supposed to be expounding on these, but you know me, right? Uh, worship style, you know, the flow of a service, the kind of music that's played, these are things that I believe there's room for. The Scriptures doesn't don't lay out for us a, a strict liturgy of what our church services should look like. And so I think there's room for interpretation there. Uh, and some of it comes down to personality. Some of it comes down to just the specifics of demographics and where God calls a church to be on mission at. Okay, so there's all kinds of things that influence that. But the problem is if we get dogmatic and say, church has to be done this way, um, and, and we don't have scriptures for that, it's, we, we start to look dumb. Um, Somebody who knows, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Spurgeon that said, where the scriptures are silent, you should be also. So we'll try to do that. We'll try to kick it with Spurgeon on that one, right? I'm, I'm sticking with him. Um, things like spiritual gifts, how those operate, when they operate. Uh, I, clearly, we have ideas about that here at Love City, but I believe there's churches that have other ideas about that that still love Jesus, are on mission, and care about the gospel. Okay, so those are... Those are open-hand topics. Things like eschatology, that's the study of last things, right? So like when Jesus is going to come back, uh, when is the tribulation going to be? Is it going to be pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation? People have all kinds of opinions about that. This is, you know, so this is a good example. Like it's, it's not super clear from the Scripture. It's not like spelled out exactly how all that's going to go down. You kind of got to go a few different places to kind of come up with what you understand that to be, Right? Being saved by grace through faith, not hard to find. Spelled out really well, right? That's why that's an essential doctrine that belongs in the close hand. We don't have to guess about it. It's affirmed by everybody, everywhere, all through the scriptures. That's the way things go. Um, you know, when exactly things are going to totally go to crap, as far as the tribulation is concerned, you know, I got thoughts about it, but it's not something we should divide over. At the, here's what I want you to know, and we're gonna, one of the things we're going to talk about uh, is kingdom towards the end of this series. And we'll talk a little bit about eschatology and, and, and kind of the end times and things like that. Uh, but I'm going to make the same point now as I'm going to make then. Jesus is coming back. So here's the bottom line. You need to live like that's tomorrow, but plan like it's not going to happen in your lifetime. Right? As far as holiness and, and dealing with sin in your own life and an urgency to share the gospel, 
We should act like it's any minute now. And that's what the, the scriptures make that point. Like, you don't know. He can come like a thief in the night. You better be on it. But that also doesn't mean that we, we totally freak out, withdraw from culture, and, you know, just don't be on mission because any minute Jesus is coming. You can't overcorrect either way, right? Bottom line, here's what I believe about eschatology. He's coming back. So get yourself straight. Good enough? Good enough. It's good enough for me. The key in these things is always to be humble, knowing that when we read the scriptures, we are reading um, the inspired words of our infinite and omniscient God. That means he is all-knowing. And some things are hard to understand. Can we be honest about that? Um, anybody that tells me they've got it all figured out, that's the person I'm shutting out you know, quickest. I'm, I'm tuning out, right? I'm distracted, watching something shiny fly by. Um, we should leave room for people to work through things with the help of the Holy Spirit where the Bible leaves room for things, right? We should leave room for people to be, in, and, and sometimes people's positions on certain overhand topics changes, and that's okay. We welcome that. We want you to study and be on a journey with Jesus, man. And, um, you know, sometimes as you walk with Jesus longer and you spend more time in the scriptures, you, you learn things that you didn't know. And so that's okay, and it's actually something that we encourage. Um, if you would, turn with me to Genesis 1, verse 1, and we're going to establish what we believe about the beginning of everything. So you'll, you'll notice even uh, in this sermon about creation and the beginning of all things, we're going to talk about the, the elements of this doctrine that there's no negotiation on, and we're going to talk about parts and things, different things that some people believe that um, there, there is room. There is room for discussion, okay? Genesis 1, normally I would give you longer to find the scripture, but if you're struggling with that one, <coughs> see me after, <laughs> see me after, and I'll help you, because I love you, okay? Um, let's, let's read Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're very close-handed about this fact. This is... If you want to summarize what we believe about creation, this is what I really need you to know above all else. I'm going to give you some varying theories about when and how it happened, and la da 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 God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator, okay? Which means all, there's all kinds of implications behind that when you're creator. That means you're king, lord, rule maker, sovereign, um, and, and all kinds of other good words that mean you're an authority, okay? And that's, that's the real key there. So, uh, God is the creator of absolutely everything. He existed throughout eternity past, and he will never cease to be. Think about God never beginning. Just try for a second. Think about eternity backwards, like time never starting. Or think about eternity forwards, time never stopping, that it just goes on and on forever. That's the best exercise for humility that I can think of. Because if, if, if you think you're like grasping that, you haven't thought hard enough yet. Because you'll know, when you, you'll know when you really thought through it because your mind will turn to mush. When you try to think, we are, we are beings that have been, ex we exist and we're created inside of a time parameter. God exists above that, which is just another reason why I bow down and worship his greatness. He's not bound by time and he needed no first cause. Some of you understand why that's important, some of you don't. For those of you that do, remember that. He had no need for cause. He existed always internally. He never started to be. Okay? Now let's skip to Genesis um, chapter 1, verse 26. This will be the second half of our doctrinal statement on creation. 
Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the second thing that we are very close-handed about. God made us. God made everything, and God made us. Those are the major two points that we really care about. Uh, This pretty much sums up what is closed-handed for us on the issue. Now, there are varying ideas about the details of this, and uh, we're going to cover some of those. Um, The bottom line for us is that God made us. There is debate, however, about exactly how and when that happened. Uh, I'm going to give you summaries of the prevailing views on this. Um, Some of you have already studied this subject, and you know what you believe about it. Um, Some of you had no idea that anybody thought different than you about it, (laughs) right? So I'm going to expose you to a few different thoughts. Um, If you already know where you're at, hallelujah. If you don't, uh, this should be interesting. The biggest debate circles around when it comes to creation. So we're still talking about folks that are inside of Christianity. They still, you know, they, they claim to believe the Bible. There's there's debates that circle around the age of the earth, right? Because let's be honest, most uh, textbooks that claim to be scientific that you read would say that the earth is very old, right? So there's, there's some people that believe the earth is relatively young, around 6,000 years old. Um, and the way they came up with that typically is by looking at genealogies in the scriptures. People's name included with the number of years that they lived. They did math, went back and said, that gives us pretty much the age of the earth, okay? Uh, And some think that modern science has rightly shown us it is much older, that the earth is somewhere in the neighborhood of 4.5 billion years, which is, you know, it's an unfathomable amount of time, so again, it it starts to humble you when you think about it. Um, So people that think the earth is young, around 6,000 years old, they're oftentimes called young earth creationists, um, and they believe that it's essential that the Bible be taken literally in its account of the six actual days of creation and that you use those genealogies to trace pretty much the years that are given and that gives you a, an age for the earth, right? Um, the Hebrew word for day is yom and that is part of the, the hitching point of why people take that, the, the six days literally for those to mean actual six days, 24 hours like we think of it, um, when challenged, when a young earth creationist is challenged about geological evidence that seems to point to the earth being very old, right? Because most people that hit rocks with picks would tell you, you know, this layer was 40 million years ago, right? You know, you watch, those of you that watch anything halfway educational on TV know what I'm talking about. I'm scared by how many people look like they had no idea what I was talking about. There's these guys called geologists. They study rocks. And sometimes they use picks to chip the rocks. So it's in books. Those are, those are cool. Um, <clears throat> uh, so when they're challenged about it seeming to look, based on geological evidence, that like the earth is very old, uh, sometimes they'll give two answers to that. Sometimes they'll say, well, God very well may have created the earth and in so doing made it look old when he did it. It could have started out looking old. Okay, that is sometimes an answer they will give. Sometimes uh, another reason they'll say for that is that the... Uh, the cataclysmic nature of Noah's flood would have so violently changed the earth's topography that it would, 
I mean, it'd be very hard to tell anything right because so much sediment would be thrown around. I mean, if you think about the whole earth being covered in water, crazy stuff is happening, right? And so they feel like that could possibly explain throwing off the timeline or why we are not interpreting it maybe correctly. Um, Young earth creationists will oftentimes question the reliability of carbon dating, uh, radioisotope dating, other methods that are used to date rocks and various artifacts, okay? They, a lot of times, don't think those are accurate. Uh, on the other hand, so you've got, that's kind of an explanation of young earth creationists. I'm giving you very succinct summaries of kind of where they're coming from because uh, we could take days and weeks talking about it in large. But uh, on the other side of that, so you've got young earth creationists. There's also old earth creationists. Um, and they think that the uh, days of creation, the six days of creation, that those are more figurative, right? Um, they will often quote 2 Peter 3.8 that tells us that one day is like a thousand years with God and a, a thousand years is like one day, which I think is a fair point. Uh, again, we're trying to deal with God inside of time when he's an infinite being, you know, right? Brain jelly again, yes, uh, if you're humble enough to admit it. Um, and so what they're really pointing out in saying that is that time does not restrain God. He's not limited by that. Uh, and they think that the days of creation could be another example of God telling us a story in a certain way to help us better grasp it, right? He had to tell us somehow that he, he created the earth, and so he picked days to kind of tell that story, a time frame that we could understand. Um, and they believe the earth is very old and that there were long spans of time in between the creation process. So they would tell you that, that many of them believe that it, it kind of went the way that the Bible says, but there, those days there was much longer spans of time, and that's kind of how they explain much scientific evidence that would make it look like the earth is old, okay? Um, there's a third group of people. They are oftentimes, they are old earth uh, in their understanding of kind of how, how long this uh, sphere has been hanging here. Um, but they, they kind of add another part to the way they think about things. There's a group of people called theistic evolutionists. And so theistic, talking about Obviously, the God's involved and evolutionists that they still believe in the evolutionary theory. So they believe that the evolutionary theory is basically correct, uh, but they do not think that this must lead to a naturalistic or atheistic understanding of that, okay? They believe that God may very well have guided the evolutionary process, maybe kick-started it along, um, and that makes the Genesis account, for someone that's a theistic evolutionist, pretty much the Genesis account of creation is almost completely allegory. It's, it's all pretty much just the way God decided to give us a story to help us understand the fact that he created us, okay? But not much of it, if any, could be taken literally, okay? Um, many of you won't like this, but you are free to hold any of these positions and still be a member at Love City. Because most of you were like, okay, now he's going to tell us which one's right. Here's the thing, man. Um, I, I promise you, I've, I've studied all these things in depth for a long time. And I'm going to say something that's going to blow your mind because pastors aren't supposed to say this. I don't know how old the earth is. I don't know. There's compelling evidence on both sides of that argument. There really is. And if you study it, um, you'll find that that's true. There's really good things to think about on both sides of it. And uh, you can hold any of these positions and still be a member here, and we don't need to argue about it because the bottom line is God made us. Flat out. That's what's important. That's what I want you to know. And, and some of you won't like that because some of you are really, really pumped about your certain brand of whether you're young earth or old earth or whatever. I respect that. 
And um, I respect the time that you put into getting to that position. However, I'm telling you we will not divide over that. I'm telling you we're not going to stick a flag in the ground and say, I'm 100% sure the earth's 6,000 years old or 4.5 billion years old or God knows what, okay? We're not going to do that. Um, we're going to humbly continue to look at the evidence and hopefully somebody comes up with something real conclusive. I don't think anybody has. That's the point. As much as I've studied it, I don't think anybody's nailed it to the wall to where it's just indisputable now. We've got it. This is how old the earth is, okay? This, this, and it, you see how this takes humility? Because many of us, are, we, like, we want to know, right? And we want to know that we know. We want everyone else to know that we know. And so we, it, it took me a long time to get okay with saying, I don't know. And you should be okay with that because there's going to be things you don't know. Because you're not God. And that's okay. Um, if you don't know where you land on this, uh, clearly what I just gave you is not enough for you to... I would not want you to try to make a decision based on the summaries I just gave you of these positions. Um, if you don't know where you land, that's okay. There's several books that I could suggest to you to get you started thinking through these things. Um, and there's several other uh, brothers and sisters in the congregation I know have read some good books on this we could point you to. Uh, some of you don't really care. Some of you really wish I'd move on to the next point. Um, and you're okay with just knowing that you were made by God in His image and He loves you. And that's okay too. Some of you are going to be more geared to I'm going to chase down and answer this question until I bleed from my eyes. Uh, I'm going to read so much <laughs> that, you know, it, it's going to be painful somehow, right? And some of you are like, can we just talk more about Jesus? I don't care how old the earth is. And uh, we need both types of people. We need people that really care about getting in there and digging into stuff um, as long as they stay humble as they do it. Um, and because they're going to have a certain gift set. They're going to be able to reach a certain type of people. And uh, we also need people that are like, it's all good. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Um, no matter what position you hold on this, I would encourage you to avoid fruitless debates with other Christians about the age of the earth or the specifics of the way God made us. I'm not saying you can't have a conversation about it. I said fruitless debates, okay? Some debates can be fruitful. Sometimes talking through things, pushing each other, stretching each other mentally and and going through that process of a, a good, friendly, loving debate can be very fruitful and very beneficial and prepare you for having fruitful, loving, beneficial conversations with unbelievers. However, there's also those other kind of debates. And I don't know if you've been in them, but I have. I've been a wretched, dirty sinner about getting in debates with people and trying to flex how smart I am, okay? Um, I didn't know I was doing it at the time, but then I think about it later, you know, and Jesus gives me the old smack in the back of the head. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't, don't be dogmatic about this. If somebody believes the earth is young and you don't, praise the Lord. We, you both know that God made us, all right? If somebody thinks that God just kick-started evolution and that's how it went, you know, and you don't believe that, praise the Lord. We still know who the author of life is, okay? It's King Jesus always. He's the big point. Um, so I, I would, but those of you that are like really jazzed up about studying these type of things, um, and if you're going to spend your, if you're going to spend a bunch of time equipping yourself for defending a position, I would encourage you to study up on the evidence for the fact that we were created, as opposed to spending a whole bunch of time trying to defend your flavor of creation right? Either the young earth or old earth deal. And I know some of you, I've had conversations with some of you, I know 
you've spent hours on YouTube trying to, you know, decipher young earth, old earth, okay? And that's, listen, I get it. I'm like you. I'm hungry like that too. I like to learn. However, those 14 hours of YouTube would have been much better spent equipping yourself to defend against the atheist onslaught that says none of those are true. You are simply the product of time plus matter plus chance. There is no God and you were not created. You came from lightning hitting sludge and uh, we got lucky. Okay? That's, if you're going to really spend your time figuring out how to defend a position lovingly, I, I would encourage you to spend time studying that. Okay? I'm not saying don't care about the other at all. I'm just saying not the biggest deal in the day and time we live. Because there's a whole bunch of people that want to cut the legs right out from underneath the authority of the scriptures by first attacking Genesis 1. The very premise that God created us. That's under attack, full force. Okay? Uh, the fact is no longer assumed that we were created. Um, the assault that's coming against that is coming from all sides. You, here's what you need to know about that, though. When you encounter somebody that's an atheist, or you see uh, Christopher Hitchens or whoever else, Dawkins and all these guys, um, the new atheist as they're termed, uh, just viciously and venomously attacking the scriptures, attacking God, attacking God's character, attacking the scriptures, um, making it seem like you must be a fool or a simpleton to believe the account of creation. When you see that, it will help you to take note of the root of that. And it is the same root that is the root of every sin in every man. What do you think that is? It's pride. Pride is the mother and the root of every sin. It is the mother and the root of this rebellion against God and his word, because here's the problem. You see it in the garden. For some reason, there's something in us, this curiosity that causes us to want to be our own God, to be autonomous, not only to be like God, but to rule ourselves. Somehow, we foolishly and pridefully think that we can do it better than him. We have proven ourselves wrong time and again. Have we not? I'm talking about you in your life. I'm not just, don't think about everyone else you know that screwed it up good. I'm talking about you. How many times have you proved that you doing it on your own, your way, is not the best? I'll raise my hand. I've done it. I've learned that lesson the hard way. Those, uh, these strident atheists, they hate the idea of a sovereign God who created us because if he made us, then he rules us. And just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, they want not just to be like God, but to be their own God. And so this rebellion is fueled by pride. And it's fueled by a desire to not be ruled by anyone, to be their own God. And when you understand that, it helps you. First of all, you know, I'm a, I have an intense personality. And so when people, even, even I remember in high school, I was, kind of a, I was kind of a spineless Christian in high school. I didn't really stand for Christ. One of the great regrets of my life, to be honest with you, because I knew the truth, but I didn't share it. And, uh, but I could still even remember people you know, just in social situations or whatever that would just really disrespect Jesus or the Bible. And, uh, like, I just wanted to slam their head into something. You know, like, that was my response. And a lot of times, like, you can feel angry when somebody attacks viciously the character of the God that you love so much, right? And, but we have to, we have to let that anger subside and have compassion for them instead because the same sin sickness that would have dragged us to hell is what's fueling their misunderstanding. They are deceived. Pride is the great deceiver. They have been deceived into thinking that 
they, many times, many times what's happening now is um, it, it'll come in the form of attacking all religion. That if they'll, they'll say that religion is evil and they can convince themselves pridefully that them pushing their humanistic agenda is freeing the oppressed minds of those that are religious. Those weak, oppressed minds that have been crutched so long by the Bible and its, its feeble tales, this is, the, this is the kind of language they would use. They think they're on some crusade to free us from an oppressive God who rules us. Brother, I'm trying to free you from you, so we'll see. I mean, we'll see who lasts longer. I'm not going anywhere. Because, I, I mean, to me, you know, I'm not a betting man, but I've always thought of it this way. It, let's just say... Let's just say you want to go for the best odds, right? <laughs> you got somebody that's betting there's no God. You got a lot to risk. Like the worst thing I'm risking is I'm going to I'm going to live a life charactered after Jesus Christ himself. I'm going to be married to one woman, love my kids. I'm going to walk the principles and the the ethics that the Bible teaches me. The worst that can happen to me is I die and nothing happens. And I lived an awesome life with awesome people. That's the worst possible end scenario for me. Now, how about the other guy that's betting hard that there's no God? He takes his last breath. Who's taking the bigger risk here? I mean, clearly that shouldn't be the reason whether or not you serve God. I'm just saying, let's just think about it. Like, brother, you could be in trouble. You might want to rethink your position. Um... Though many try to defame and denounce King Jesus, a careful look at the evidence in many different scientific disciplines reveals the fingerprints of an intelligent creator. Um, I've been through this with you before, and so I won't take a real long time, but you know, there's, there's a certain point where it becomes foolish to, to keep chalking things up to coincidence, right? I mean, you look at, you look at us in, in humanity, you look at the environment that we're in, like if you, if you pull way back to big scale, right, our, our sun is a part of a galaxy. It's the Milky Way galaxy. You guys remember that from school? The Milky Way is a spiral galaxy. There's all different kinds of shapes of galaxies. Many are chaotic, like gravity is not, uh, it, it's not stable, Think crazy stuff's going on. The, uh, a spiral galaxy, the way the Milky Way is, is, is one of the few places in the entire universe stable enough to have a solar system like ours. With this, do you know how many different types of stars there are? That's a lot. Very few are stable enough with stable enough levels of radiation to support life. We just happen to be in a solar system with one of those. And we just happen to be the distance we are from that sun, right? 93 million miles, a little bit closer, we're all crispy. A little bit farther away, we're all icicles. But uh, sure, that could be a coincidence too. But what about the fact that we have one moon? That it's the size that it is, and the size that the moon is is what controls our seasons and our tides, Right? The very fact that our moon is the way that it is, the distance it is from our earth, is the reason why the tides flow in and out. If that didn't happen, the oceans would be a stink pond. It would not support life. This planet wouldn't exist. What about the mixture of gases on this planet? Right, Just enough nitrogen, just enough oxygen to support life. I'm sure that could be a coincidence too. What about all the liquid water? Look in your telescope as far as you want. Find me some more liquid water. Can't do it. Oh, but the stride and atheists will tell you, oh, yeah, but, but there's, it's, there's so many stars out there. There's got to be a ton of it. Find me some. Yeah, I know. Yeah, keep grasping at straws, right? Keep talking about how big the universe is and how, well, surely there's a ton of stars out there, and, and so life could have happened anywhere. Just, 
just happened to be here. What about the gravitational pull of this planet in reference because of its size, the kind of core that we have, and again, our distance to the sun? Little bit higher gravitational pull, do you know you'd be no higher than a roly-poly? You could not stand upright. You'd be crushed under the weight of, of gravitational pull. Little bit less, your bones wouldn't be dense enough to exist. You'd be, we'd all be jellyfish. Should I keep going or you get, you get the point? At a certain point, all the things stacking up, showing the fine-tuning that went in to making an environment for us, it starts to begin to be ridiculous to say, oh, coincidence. Well, no, that's a coincidence. That's a coincidence. Well, well, I, I know, but that's a coincidence. How many times do you get to say that and still sound smart? But we're dumb, right? We're dumb for believing the Bible and that there's a loving God that made us. We're, that's the feeble-minded position, right? Or is it feeble-minded to just plow through all the evidence that stares you in the face every day? Imagine that you knew none of that, that you'd never read a book, and you simply walk outside. Does it not declare, does nature itself not declare the glory and splendor of our God? You ever seen a beautiful sunset? God, I saw one the other day, man. It was just, I got now his attention. I said, hon, look at that. Tell me there's no God, man. At some point, it becomes ridiculous. I didn't even go to biology. Oh, this will be fun. Hold on. I didn't even get to biology. We just did a bunch of cosmology and astronomy. Let's talk about biology for a second. Let's talk about life itself, how complex it is. Think about even just this, a single-celled organism, man, what it takes for that thing to exist and to be alive. How did we get from non-life to life? What, what happened? Lightning hit some primordial ooze, and out of that, you got a single-celled organism. That swam around long enough, somehow became a polywog. That one day decided to do a backflip up on shore and become all of the variety of biological life. I don't give it billions of years. Have you seen any cats become bears or even move towards that transition? I mean, where the heck are all the transitional fossils, my Darwinian friends? I mean, I love you, but you are blinded by your pride. Wake up. You were made by a loving God. You were created. And I would desperately ask anybody that might listen to this sermon to consider the implications of that. And that it might be that you're deceived by your own pride and your desire to be autonomous and your own ruler. It doesn't make sense. That's, that's my only problem with, with the theistic evolution. Honestly, God, if you really study it, there are so many gaps in that theory, and I know there's compelling evidence that points to it. I know there's things you can observe in nature that maybe seems like it, it could happen, but when you look at the total picture, it just doesn't make sense without God involved. It doesn't make sense. You can't go from non-life to life. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Just how complex... How complex you are as a human, man. Do you understand what it's taken for you to sit there right now, listen, hear what I'm saying, process it, thinking, you're breathing. Most of you are digesting something, yes? Your skeletal system's holding you up, man. Your nervous system is, is firing all this stuff off, man. Your electrical impulses are going, and, and you're telling me that just, just give it enough time, and we go from polywog to you. What takes more faith to believe, man? That a sovereign, powerful God created us? <laughs> or just poof out of nothing, here we went, I mean, here we came. It's, okay, it's like, let me think, it's like this. I was trying to think of what I had in my pocket. 
This is a 16 gig iPhone, okay? 16 gigs, that's pretty impressive, right? This iPhone does a lot of cool things, yes? I mean, it is, it is an impressive piece of machinery. Um, it, it's very helpful. It, I mean, it can do, it's like a computer in your hand. Really, it's, imp it's very impressive. I don't even begin to utilize all of its functions. Very complex piece of equipment right here. If you were to just walk by and find that on the ground, never seen one before, and you pick that up and you hit the little home button and you slide the little slider and you begin to look at all the apps and all the neat things that it does and you accidentally hit the home button twice and up pops Surrey, how can I help you, right? Um, what's, here's my question. What's your assumption about this going to be? That by the, the happenstance, time plus matter plus chance, somehow the right materials assembled themselves over time and, you know, it, it went wrong a lot of times, but eventually, boom, out came the iPhone, fully functional. Is that reasonable? Do you, do you, do you understand how much more complex your body is than this stinking iPhone? Do you understand? This thing holds 16 gigs of information. whoopity do. Do you know what? Harvard scientists recently fit 700 terabytes of information in a single gram of DNA. You, don't, you can't fathom what 700 terabytes is. I know you're trying. You have no idea because it's so unbelievably big. That's in a gram of DNA. Science still cannot reliably explain to us how it is that the very simplest part, building block of life being a cell, has DNA in it that is pre-programmed to tell it what it, it has information in it. Where did that come from? I mean, trying to tell me that we came from nothing, time plus matter plus chance, man, would you believe that a, a dictionary happened because a printing press exploded? Boom! It just happened to land in all of its perfect complexion. No. Or, or tor a tornado blows through a junkyard, and out comes a Maserati. You strapping into that one and doing 150 down the highway? I don't think so. It doesn't, it's silly, isn't it? It's silly. It's like I'm cracking jokes, isn't it? That's how it, it's equally ridiculous to assume that not only humans being the, the, the crown achievement of, of God's creation, but every other form of biological life, plant and animal, that it all just, out of nothing, out of nothing popped into existence. It's silly. It's, it's really, it is silly. And so pity and compassion, pity and compassion should be our overriding sentiment when somebody expresses to us how convinced they are there is no God and that we're the product of nothing. The fact that we were made by God is an essential doctrine. It's the very foundation of meaning and purpose and morality and destiny. If we were not created the heck does any of this even mean? If we are the product of nothing, if we are a cosmic accident, what's the point? The heck is the point? There isn't one. Is there right and wrong? What if we're just if we're just meat machines that came out of nothing, no purpose? Is there right and wrong? No. Go ahead, go determine it yourself. Who can tell you anything different? If we came from nothing, we're going nowhere, and what's in between doesn't matter. If you came from nothing, then when you die, you're going nowhere. And what happens in between doesn't matter at all. 
Think about it. That's why this is an essential doctrine. That's why in selecting eight weeks worth of things that we establish that we believe as important, the fact that God made us makes that list. We must believe that. We must. We were made by God for fellowship with him. But sin has disrupted our original intent, what God made us for. We are all separated from God by sin. This is the bad news that makes the good news of the gospel make sense. God did create us. He created us for relationship with him. It's beautiful. He could have done anything. I don't know why he picked us, why he made us with perfect foreknowledge. He knew how much trouble we would be, and he still went through it. What? I know how much trouble I've been, much less all of humanity throughout all of time. And yet he still saw fit to create us. He knew how rebellious we would be. He knew the atrocities we would commit against each other and against him. And he still made us. And he made us for relationship with him. He made us for community with him. He built us so that we could relate to him and be his children. But sin has disrupted that original intent. Sin cut us off and separated us from God. The standard, God is perfect. God is holy. Holy means to be set apart. God is totally and completely perfect. And that is what is required to be in fellowship with him, perfection. That is the height of the bad news. Because none of us is perfect, right? Romans 3 has made that clear. None of us is perfect. And we don't get to, we don't get to use that as an excuse. See, some, sometimes we'll say things like, oh, well, nobody's perfect. And we think that gets us off the hook. No, that gets us on the hook with everybody else. None of us is perfect. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us deserve hell and separation from the God that made us. That is what we deserve. But somehow God saw fit to not give us what we deserve. And I'm really thankful about it. That's why I don't struggle to give. That's why I don't struggle to sacrifice my life for the telling of this message. Because that point right there, I didn't get what I deserved. That's what grace is about. Grace is unmerited, undeserved favor. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad God went that way because he could have went the other way. He could have just let us have what we deserve, but he didn't. He could have left us separated from him, but he didn't. And he made a way that we could be reconciled to him. And the way he did that is embodied in the person of Jesus. God had a plan And it's amazing to me that before we fell in sin, he already knew how he was going to take care of it. He sent Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the requirement of perfection because that's what's required for fellowship with God, remember? Jesus did it because none of us could. He lived that perfect life. But then in order for us to partake in his perfection, there had to be a sacrifice and it had to be him. That's why he had to come as a man, so he could stand in for us, mankind, and he did. Perfect, flawless, sinless Jesus took the beating, took the separation from God, took the devastation of the cross on our behalf, hung there as if helpless when all the time he could have commanded legions of angels to lay waste to his enemies and bring him down gently from that cross, and so we know that it wasn't nails that held him there but a deep and intense and eternal love for you and I. 
And he went through that excruciating pain all the way to his last breath. He died. But the part of the good news that lets us know that everything he said was true is he didn't stay dead. Understand something, friends. The level of religious teacher that Jesus was, if he was in a grave somewhere, there'd be a shrine so big around it, there'd be so many trinkets being sold. Do you, anywhere, any, look, any other religion, you can go to where Muhammad's buried. You can, go, you can go stand there, pray some prayers, get ripped off by the token sellers, you can do that. You can go, there's a place, you can go and uh, I think it's Buddha's tooth they got. You can go to that place, you can, you can see a part of dead Buddha. There's nowhere to go see dead Jesus. Because he's not dead. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. And when you die and you come back, all of a sudden everything you said, there's no more questions about it. All of a sudden we don't get to say, well, I don't know if I agree with... No, 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 no. When you rise from death, when you conquer death, hell, and the grave, all of a sudden it validates all your statements. That's why Jesus is worthy of worship. He didn't stay dead. He rose again. He ascended to the Father and sits at the right hand of the Father making complete and constant intercession for us all the time. He didn't just make grace and pardon for us one time continually. Every day as we sin, thought, word, and deed, as we struggle through this life, as we go through this process of sanctification, he is ever sitting there. God's wrath being pacified. The destruction that we deserve being held back because of his gracious sacrifice on our behalf. We didn't get what we deserved. We got what he deserved. No one else has given that deal. Nobody else has offered that. Nobody else is saying, bring me your sin, all of your failings, bring me your rebellion, and all the stuff you've done essentially to spit in my face. You bring me all that, sit it at my feet, I'll give you my righteousness, I'll give you the right standing I earned with God the Father. I'll give you that, I'll give you joy and peace and a purpose. You trade me all the junk of life that you've accrued, all your sadness and depression, everything you struggle with, you come, you, you trade me. It's called the great exchange, man. And isn't it great? I had somebody tell me recently after preaching a sermon, I don't know, someone must have told this guy it was okay to say something like this, I don't know, but he comes up and he says, uh, Hey, man, uh, I liked your sermon, but I think you're wound up a little too tight. I just thought about it. It's like, yeah, I am wound up. And, and if you really understood what we were talking about, you'd be wound up too, brother. This is something to be excited about. I'm tired of people acting like what we should get together is every week come together, and I tell you some story that entertains you and gets you to chuckle a couple times. We are coming together every week to celebrate the greatest news that could ever be told. And so there is no room for complacency. Yeah, I'm wound up. And you should be too. It's exciting, man. I don't have to live chained to my sins and my addictions and my failings anymore. I don't have to be identified by how many times I've screwed it up. I can be set free and released and, and made one again with the God who made me. I can fellowship with him again. I can know him again. I can hear his voice. I can be led by his sweet Holy Spirit. I can trust and obey his word, man. That's freedom. To obey the loving God that made me is the truest freedom that can be found. To run around a slave to my own prideful impulses, mm. God, so many people think that's freedom. 
Your job, dear ones, that know is to share with as many as possible the truth that Jesus can set them free. This is what we're called to. To know this is to be called to share this. There is no disconnect. It's automatic. I don't care if you have come to faith in Christ during this message. You are now commissioned to share this message. No downtime. Because remember, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. We need to act like it's tomorrow. We need to act like it's next 45 minutes. There is no time to waste. Amen? Amen. Amen.